Daredevil Nick Walenda completed a historic high-wire walk on a two-inch steel cable over the Grand Canyon last Sunday night. Over 13 million Discovery Channel viewers watched the self-described king of the high-wire take 22 minutes and 54 seconds to walk 1,400 feet without a tether or a safety net. Now, Walenda said the walk was stressful. No kidding! (laughs) But he also said the view from 1,500 feet above the snaking little Colorado River below was breathtaking. If you watched the the clip on YouTube, you'll you'll have heard Walenda pray constantly as he walked. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Now, he's a seventh-generation member of the Flying Walenda family of high-wire performers, and he made history last year by becoming the only person to complete a high-wire walk over the brink of Niagara Falls. He told Guidepost magazine, quote, I don't know why God's given our family this gift, but I knew in my heart that the only way to honor it was for me to use it. Even if it was difficult, even if it was dangerous, danger was real, but fear was a choice. I would choose faith instead. After all, that was part of my family legacy, too. Everything we did was for the glory of God. Of this particular crossing, Walenda said, quote, It was a dream come true. This is what my family has done for 200 years, and it's part of my legacy. Wow, I imagine that many of us only hope that our legacy involves something a little less life-threatening. <laughs> but what I found interesting about Nick Walenda is that he finds real life in fulfilling his God-given destiny. In stepping in to fulfill his part of God's great story by being a high-wire acrobat. Imagine that. What is your part in God's real-life story? Where do you find your real-life satisfaction? What's your destiny? Well, uh, to the end of helping us answer this question more completely... We launched a series of sermons last week titled Finding Real Life in God's Great Story. We're studying through the book, uh, New Testament book of 1 John. And in the end, we hope that we all gain a clearer understanding of our purposefulness in God's great story to become more Christ-like in love and joy and peace and deep contentment and some meaningful contribution to our communities and the church family as we discover and live out our destiny. Let's pray together. We start with chapter one. Lord, this morning we just uh, bow our heads and pray the prayer you taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, blessed be your name. We bless your name for the salvation in Christ. We bless your name for the fullness of your spirit. We bless your name for soundness of health and mind and body. We bless your name for the success and favor that we experience. And we bless your name for the security in Jesus against an uncertain future. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on the earth, right here, even as it's done in heaven. Lord, we pray for your kingdom to break into our lives, our families, our church family, and our community in the ways that you know we need. Lord, not just here in this room, but even right next door, Vineyard Kids, where uh, we, we long to see your kingdom come among our children. Lord, put power on your word to our lives today in your name. Amen. Now, years ago, when the Hare family was preparing to take a a vacation or a road trip, we'd get out what used to be called a road map. They looked like this. 
Um, for case any of you uh, have never seen one of these, you might find them in a museum someday. This is a roadmap of the state of Illinois. So th- th- they compile these, used to, in things called road atlases. But uh, when MapQuest was invented, the, uh, the map making and atlas industry nearly went obsolete. And then just a few years later, uh, with the advent of global positioning systems, um, then that, the, that industry, MapQuest, almost went, went uh, delinquent as well. You know, and with a GPS, this is a Garmin, uh, all you have to do is, you know, hop in your vehicle and program in your destination and then just follow what she says. Now, now I, I'll tell you, I, I never trusted the gal inside our Garmin. Never did. There were too many times when I just knew with my God-given sense of direction that she was telling me to get off the interstate when it wasn't right. So I've never really used the Garmin. My wife loves her. But, but I, I don't. Um, but anyway, for those of us that are, uh, you know, big picture people, those of us who want to see where we're going and the best way to get there, we kind of like an overall map of things, don't we? We want to see the end from the beginning. Uh, we want to know the best way to get there. Uh, so whether it's in the form of a map or an atlas or a zoomed out view on Google Maps now, uh, you know, we, we like the big picture. And, and when we're studying a book of the Bible, I kind of think it's best to get the big picture, kind of see where we're going, get the lay of the land, instead of just diving in, which is like hopping in your car and pressing the button and turning on the GPS. I, I don't like to do that. I, I, I want to get the bigger picture. So let's, by way of repetition, remind you of just a few things uh, about the book of First John. I may encourage some of you to actually listen to the podcast from last week's message if you weren't able to be here. Every week, our sermons are available on podcast. Mark does a great job. 20 minutes after the message, you can go to our webpage and actually listen to our sermons. Uh, you can actually subscribe in iTunes, and they'll come every week as a, uh, as a download. But John is writing in the very closing chapters of his life. He's now an old man. And, the, and his gospel, the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation, are the last five books of the New Testament to be written. He writes with the wise perspective of a seasoned saint who has loved and served Jesus as a pastor and leader in the local church, first in Jerusalem, and then later in Ephesus. And perhaps this had now gone on 50 to 60 Years. And of all the things that John could have said, this indeed is what he did say. He's not writing a textbook, although sadly for the last 2,000 years, that's often how the church has approached the letters. He is addressing a local situation where Christians are caving into temptation or the deception of the devil in three ways. They're fighting each other. Secondly, they're loving the world and abandoning the faith in which they started. Thirdly, they're succumbing to the false teaching of Gnosticism. The Gnostics claimed to have special insight. The special insight was dualism. That is, the spirit and the body are two separate entities. They believed that sin resided in the body or the flesh only, And since the spirit was pure and holy, 
you, you could do with your body whatever you chose. That behavior didn't matter. And so at the big picture, John was trying to earnestly send three simple but very powerful messages to his audience. First, that love is the most important thing. That God is love and we should love one another. Secondly, John is declaring that right belief, we call that orthodoxy, and right behavior, we call that orthopraxy, are both necessary. And then thirdly, John is saying, regarding right behavior, Christians almost always live in the tension of equally universal, equally powerful right beliefs. So orthopraxy lives between orthodoxies. Okay, you got that? (laughs) Big words, but you'll see where this unpacks in, in the weeks to come. Now, we are going to see John's three overlapping, interwoven themes be everywhere present in in these uh, five chapters. But it is almost impossible to construct an outline. An outline of 1 John is not obvious. His approach is not logical, linear, and argumentative. Rather, it's contemplative. He writes a very personal and very passionate letter to people whom he loves, and many of whom he's probably pastored. His whole letter is repetitive. He keeps coming back to these same three themes over and over again. It's not the kind of letter that moves from A to B and then C in strict order. Rather, it's a little of A, and then a little of A and C, and then B, and then a little of B and C, and then C with a little b and a added. We're going to read and reflect John's letter the way it was written. It's our conviction, my conviction, that the Holy Spirit chose to give us this truth in this fashion for a reason. Now, this method of reading through a chapter or a book of the Bible and then reflecting upon it is what traditionally in the church is called verse-by-verse expository teaching or preaching as contrasted to topical or thematic teaching, both of which have a very significant place to play. But I like expositional teaching because it forces the teacher to deal with everything in the Bible instead of just your pet selected topics. If you're going through verse by verse, you can't ignore what the Holy Spirit chose to record. So John's three themes are presented in a variety of ways, and then he he uh, um, supports them with, and illustrates them in various ways in a way that many of you are going to find repetitive. In fact, John's writings uh, in general, and this letter in particular, are really going to frustrate those of you who value the strength of a well-organized, logically developed theological argument. John's going to drive you crazy. You're going to think like he said that. Yeah, and he's, he said it again. And now he's saying it again. That's because it's a personal, passionate appeal of a spiritual father and pastor to his dear children. That's what he calls them. His parishioners. People in whose lives he has invested. In some cases, perhaps for decades. And friends, as a pastor of 35 years, I can tell you, 
It's very painful to watch people in whom you've invested either walk away from the faith, cave to the temptation of the devil, or embrace deception. So, you ready? First John. We're going to begin in chapter 1. And we're going to read verses, uh, well, the, the first of the first chapter all the way through to the second chapter, the second verse. Now, if you open your Bible to First John, it's it's towards the end of the New Testament, and you can open your Bible, your Bible app. There, we'll follow along on the screen uh, as well. We proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, one uh, whom we have heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. He's the Word of Life. This one, who is life itself, was revealed to us, and we have seen him. And now we testify and proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. He was with the Father, and then he was revealed to us. We proclaim to you what we ourselves have actually seen and heard, so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. We're writing these things so that you can fully share our joy. Now, this is the message we heard from Jesus and now declare to you, God is light and there's no darkness in him at all. So we're lying if we say we have fellowship with God, but we go on living in spiritual darkness. We're not practicing the truth. But if we're living in the light as God's in the light, then we have fellowship with each other and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, if we claim we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all wickedness. If we claim we've not sinned, we're calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. My dear children, I'm writing this to you so that you'll not sin. But if anyone does sin... We have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins, and not only our sins, but the sins of all the world. So the Apostle John opens the letter with a tone of finality and authority as an eyewitness to the central pillar of the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. The gospel is not a theological system. It's not a religious creed. It's not a list of do's and don'ts, a set of biographical facts. Rather, the gospel, the good news, is a person, Jesus Christ. And this simple but powerful truth is captured in this expression. Christianity is Christ. Now, John asserts that God became flesh in Jesus. Verse 1, we saw him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. We call this the incarnation. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. That is... The word of life, the eternal word of life, what John calls here literally what was from the beginning. The eternal word of life became a living, breathing human being that John actually saw and heard. 21 times now in this letter, Jesus is going to be called the son of God. 12 times God is spoken of as the father. So the deity of Christ, that Jesus was indeed God, and the relation of Jesus 
the Son to God the Father is going to be a special emphasis in these five chapters. He who was eternally with the Father from the beginning was revealed to John as Jesus Christ, the Son. Now, as an eyewitness, John was perhaps Jesus's most intimate earthly friend. For three years, he accompanied Jesus as he traveled around Palestine, proclaiming and demonstrating that God's kingdom had actually come to the earth. John was on what we might call the inner circle, along with Peter and James. The three were privileged to accompany Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, on an occasion when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter to life and prayed with him in the closing chapters of his life in Gethsemane. At the Last Supper, it was Jesus who, or, or John who leaned on Jesus' chest as Jesus foretold his coming crucifixion. All of that is to say, John knew Jesus perhaps as well as anyone on earth has ever known Jesus. You see, the, the word of a stranger, you may reject altogether. The word of a teacher or a coach or a boss, you may receive with just some question, the word of an acquaintance you're apt to believe, but the word of a close friend, you accept it without reservation, right? So we can take what John shares as the authoritative record as Jesus's closest friend and co-laborer. Now, in these opening four verses, he's going for the jugular vein of Gnosticism. Right out of the chute. Now, the Gnostics claimed that since the body or the flesh was the source of evil, therefore Jesus, if he were divine, could not have a physical body because God couldn't be associated with evil. And John doesn't waste one sentence in the letter before he boldly declares that Jesus was not a phantom or a ghost. He did not just appear to have a body, nor was he a dream. Jesus was a real person. He was God in the flesh. He was eternally coexistent with God the Father, and he was made visible. The word is revealed, made visible, tangible to us in the incarnation. And he calls Jesus the word of life. Now, incidentally, this is exactly how John began his gospel. We read in John 1, In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. The Word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. And the word became human and made his home among us. So John's message is the same. The purpose of the incarnation was to give life. We read in verse 1, he is the word of life. God is the author of life. And then in verse 2, he uses two Greek words that are often translated eternal life. Now, When we read those words, we have a tendency to think of of something purely 
spiritual that we will inherit someday when we die and go to heaven, but that, that has little effect in the, in the world of material space and time. But I don't think that's at all what John had in mind for us to think that way. The word eternal could just as equally as well have been accurately translated age. And the word for life is a Greek word, zoe, and it, it, it would refer to the fullness of life. That's life that's full and genuine, God's quality of life, not just the biological functioning kind of life. The kind of life Jesus said that he wants us to have in John 10.10. 10. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come that you might have the rich and satisfying life. Zoe, life. And so I've called the word eternal life real life, for lack of a better description. But think about it this way. Jesus represents the absolute fullness of life in the age to come. You see, Jews thought of two ages, the present evil age, and the age to come. And and Jesus announced that he was eternal life. That is the fullness of life that's representative of that which is happening in the age to come. And it's now stepped out of the future into the present, the present evil age. Jesus is real life. He's the fullness of life, the fullness of life in the age to come, now living in the present. Jesus brought real life, the real life of the future here. And it's what his followers are now privileged to, to experience in part. And it's what we're going to inherit someday in full in uh, the day when the kingdom is fully completed. And so it's not just to be thought of something like you're going to get someday when you die. But eternal life, that is the life of the age to come, the full life of the age to come, is something that you get now. Incomplete, but you get now. And and it comes, when it comes, John says, we get to actually experience fellowship with the Father and the Son. That's the word he uses, fellowship. Now, that word in verse 3 comes from a Greek word that's koinonia. And that's not referring to one of the exotic Hawaiian islands. It, It refers to sharing something in common. Believers share an intimate relationship and communion with God through Christ, his forgiveness, his changing us, his making us new, his filling us with his spirit, adopting us as his children. And then John says it doesn't stop there, that all followers of Jesus have a fellowship with other believers, others who have experienced the same thing. Those of you who have experienced Christ's forgiveness and new birth are connected to other believers in fellowship. Fellowship is the word that the the book of Acts uses when it describes the life of the early church in Acts 2.42. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. Koinonia. We have a connection with one another. We share the common experience of the goodness of God. And so you'll hear me say over and over, there are no solo flights in the kingdom. There's no such thing, biblically speaking, as a lone ranger Christian. God is always building a family, people that are connected together in fellowship, in koinonia. We we are made to connect with one another and do life together. That's God's intention. Now, part of John's intention 
is that uh, when we're connected together in fellowship, sharing the common goodness and grace of God, he says that we would be completely filled with joy. One of John's hopes in writing the letter is that we would be completely filled with joy. Joy is part of the real life experience that God wants us to, to have. How you doing on that? You call yourself a follower of Christ. Are you experiencing a measure of joy? God hopes you are. That's his intention. You see, knowing Jesus, having a connection with God and having connection with one another is not just a theological abstraction for John. It's, it's the foundation that leads to a real life experiencing a deep sense of profound fullness of joy. Not happiness. Don't get confused. The pursuit of happiness is a dead-end street. It's like being stuck on a cul-de-sac. Around and around you go. Think of joy as extraordinary enthusiasm for, for being alive, despite your circumstances. Joy is like being in a convertible with a top down on the freeway through the Smoky Mountains. Woohoo! That is joy. So, verses 1 to 4, we just reflect. Who is Jesus to you? Do you know him? If not, what stands in the way of you knowing him? At the center of historical truth, John said, stands the very real person of Jesus, the Son of God who was revealed to all people everywhere. What are you going to do with him and his claims on your life and his invitation for you to experience real life, eternal life, the life of the kingdom? And are you being propelled towards fulfilling your destiny in him? Are you choosing to yet resist or fully embrace? So then after John's powerful opening salvo in the next paragraph, chapter 1, verse 5, through chapter 2, verse 2, you don't ever let the, the way your Bible has the paragraphs all divided with those little chapter headings. They're not inspired. They were inserted there mostly in about the third century. And so we're skipping right past the divider between chapter 1 and chapter 2 because it really breaks the train of thought in John's original writing. Okay, so... Just, like, you can park that on the side. Don't ever get distracted by the chapter headings in your Bible. Sometimes they're helpful. Sometimes they get in the way, as they do here. John launches, then, into this next paragraph, into a discussion of what living in fellowship with God and one another, what this koinonia actually looks like. Now, he calls it living or walking in the light. And he starts unpacking what it means for Christians to walk in the light by offering two conditions or right beliefs that provide the right foundation for right behavior. Two conditions or two right beliefs. We need right beliefs about God and we need right beliefs about sin. First, we need to have right beliefs about God. Sadly, so many Christians struggle because we don't think about or view 
God properly. We've got all kinds of distorted or irrational and even unbiblical ideas about who God is and what he's really like. Now, we get them honestly from church, our parents, the culture, religion in general. And so I'm not being critical at all. John has no doubt witnessed such effect through his years of pastoring and teaching in the church. And so to strengthen the point, John prefaces his declaration with these words in verse 5. This is the message we heard from Jesus. It's like he's saying, hey, folks, I'm really not making this up. This is like as direct from God as it gets. A right belief about God is this. And he writes, God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. More literally, we might say today, there is no, not even one iota of darkness in God at all. So friends, no matter what religion may tell you, no matter what your life circumstances may scream at you, no matter your previous hurts and disappointments, no matter what they may seem to reinforce To the contrary, God is thoroughly good all the time in every way. Now, scholars suggest that that Jesus, whom John is quoting, that Jesus and John were teaching at both a, a real, literal level and then at a more metaphoric, figure of speech level. Let me illustrate. For instance, more literally... Jesus said, I am the light of the world, John 8, 12. And perhaps light is an attribute of God beyond the understanding or comprehension of our physical eyes. For instance, God clothes himself with light, Psalm 104, 2. God lives in light so brilliant that no human can approach him, 1 Timothy 6, 16. Of his over 100 names in the New Testament, uh, he's called the Father of Lights, James 1.17. At his transfiguration, which John witnessed, Jesus' garments turned dazzling white, Mark 9.3. And in the vision that John had recorded in Revelation chapter 1, Jesus' head and hair were white like snow. All of these references may be more than figures of speech and actually point to the nature of God as light in some way we do not understand. But metaphorically, Jesus and John were no doubt referring to how pure and loving and glorious and right and kind and eternal and powerful God and his realm are. That he is completely other than this world's realm of evil and darkness and error and brokenness, the the place of the curse of sin and death. God is completely and otherly separate from all of that. Is that how we think about God? I'll confess no, because very often when the, when the enemy 
our enemy, the devil, tries to tempt me with doubt or discouragement or just to give up, what's he do? He plants thoughts about God's character in my mind that run counter to this revelation that God is thoroughly good all the time. Now, I think John is telling his audience and us today, we can resist those temptations to doubt, discouragement, and giving up by renewing our minds to this powerful truth, God is light, and there is not a hint or a shadow of darkness in him at all. So, friends, when we hear in our mind, our heart, God is not good, he's mean, he's late, he doesn't care, he doesn't hear, he doesn't answer, he's too weak, he's punishing you, you're getting what you deserve, we can say, no! We can turn from those wrong beliefs. We can say, God, help me embrace the truth of your character as revealed in the Bible and help me embrace the belief that you are good all the time in every way. That's called renewing our mind to the truth of the revelation, the revealing, the giving of truth that John is addressing here. This is the right belief about God. That's the foundation for walking in the light. Right beliefs. Then John gives us the second condition to walk in the light, that we need to have right beliefs about sin. You see, right beliefs about sin lead us to right behavior. Now, we're only six verses into the letter when John gives us our first dose of the language of tension. And we're going to discover right away, as I've been telling you, that that uh, in many ways, right behavior is like a door spring, like the one I'm holding in my hand, with equally universal, equally powerful truths at both ends that lead to tension. So there are right beliefs about sin that John is wanting us to understand, and we'll live in the tension of those truths. Now, I shared, shared with you last week that seldom does truth stand alone. That is, we don't live at just one end, either end of the spring, but rather somewhere in the radical middle. So on one end, John declares, verse 6 of chapter 1, so we're lying if we say we have fellowship with God but go on living in spiritual darkness. If we're not practicing uh, the truth, we're not practicing the truth. Now, this, this declaration gets strengthened In chapter 3, verse 6, when he says, anyone who continues to live in him will not sin. Anyone who keeps on sinning does not know him or understand who he is. And then it gets strengthened even more in chapter 3, verse 9, when he says, those who have been born into God's family do not make a practice of sinning because God's life is in them, so they can't keep on sinning because they're children of God. So the first truth, the first right belief, is that the power of sin is broken in your life. You are no longer a slave of sin. Sincere followers of Christ do not make a habit of living in sin. If we're walking in the light, we will not sin. But then the second truth, at the other end of the spring, is this. We saw it in verses 8 and 10. If we claim we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. Verse 10, if we claim that we've not sinned, we're calling God a liar and showing his word has no place in our hearts. So the second truth, the second right belief about sin is that we're vulnerable to temptation and we will continue to sin for the rest of our lives. 
And as children of God here today, who among us would deny that every day we continue to think and say and do things that are wrong? We know this to be true. So which is it? Which is true? Absolutely. Both are. We live in a real battle. It's called tension. If any of you want to feel the tension, you're welcome to join the object lesson. Tension between two universal, equally powerful biblical truths. Friends, there is no way to read the New Testament and see life framed any other way than a tension between spirit and flesh. Old nature, new nature. Old man, new man. Present evil age, age to come. Already kingdom, not yet kingdom. Let me frame it this way. We are sons and daughters of the living God. We're already victorious, living in the presence of the future. You are a new man, a new woman created in the image of God. The power of sin has been broken in your life. You are redeemed. You are one new nature. On the other hand, we are sons and daughters of the living God, but we're still suffering the effects of this present evil age. We are weak. We are not yet totally Christ-like. We're vulnerable to to temptation, to sin, uh, the flesh, and the devil. And we will continue to stumble and fall. And if we camp out at either end of the tension of these two truths, we'll end up in an unbiblical foundation, beliefs, and eventually derailed practices, behavior. You see, if all we continue to embrace is our freedom from sin, we slip into triumphalism. We, we live in denial at best and arrogance, pride, and fanaticism at worst. On the other hand, if all we embrace is the reality of our frailty and sin, we just slip into defeatism. We live hopeless, joyless, drudgery and groaning. Woe is me. The two ages coexist within us at the same time. There's nothing wrong with you. You are normal when these things happen. Now, John's defectors were the Gnostics who believed that people had a good spirit and a bad part flesh. And John is saying, no, it's not a dualism of two parts. There aren't two people living inside of you, you know, one good and and one bad. What you experience is the already not yet of the kingdom. It's not a division of the human personality into one part inherently good, holy, and one part inherently bad or unholy, an old sinful nature you know, with with a new holy nature. You have one new nature. You are one new person, but we still suffer a continuity, a connection with this present evil age. We're linked to the present world in a way that we yearn to be free from. And it's not going to be totally free until the day the kingdom is completely come. So just how you walk in, in the light of that truth. John gives us the hope when he says, Jesus is the answer to that tension. My dear children, I'm walking, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He's Jesus Christ, the one that's righteous. So he's urging us not to sin. Behave in a way that actually reflects your new identity in Jesus. How you live matters. Belief and behavior matter. Unlike many in John's audience didn't think. So, We're urged not to sin. But then he turns right around and says, when we do sin, behave in a way that reflects the blessings of your advocate, Jesus. Confess your sin, verse 9 of chapter 1. Pray the Lord's Prayer. Father, forgive us this day our debts. Receive his cleansing 
and his, his forgiveness. And he says, by the way, Jesus is the only one who is truly righteous. None of you ever will be. Your identity is certainly as a son or daughter, but intrinsically, you're not ever going to be good like Jesus. It's his sacrifice that atones and pays and satisfies for your sin. In fact, John says, not just your sins, but the sin of the whole world. Friends, there's nothing big enough, powerful enough, sinful enough, debilitating enough, worldly enough to keep you from fellowship with God and Jesus if you desire. Neither your sin, the flesh, or the devil can cut you out of koinonia. In fact, Jesus is advocating your case before the Father right now. He is the best lawyer you ever had. We can win. Right beliefs about God, right beliefs about sin provide the right foundation for behavior that can lead us to walk in the light. So Nick Willenda finds real life fulfilling his God-given destiny, his part in God's great story by being a high-wire acrobat. What about you? As each of us fully, more fully discovers our place in God's story, I'm hoping that God will use our time together to enable us to experience a greater degree of love and joy and peace and contentment because Jesus is real, God is good, and you can win. Lord, thanks for your powerful truth. I, I just pray that you'd anoint it to our lives and we would experience the freedom uh, that you have for us, Lord. And now as we give ourselves to you again in, in worship and in, in, in giving, Lord, I pray you return blessing to our, our church family and take these tokens for what they are, signs that say we love you. Amen.